We do, Lord, uh, desire that as we look into your word, that you would be glorified. Desire to praise you, worship you this morning as we understand a little bit more of what you've revealed to us. We also respond appropriately to that revelation. And if there's anything that would be hindering us, that you would move within us, that we may either forgive sin or make sure that we have a right relationship with you, confess our sins. And Lord, we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at the book of Romans this morning again. And I showed you these photographs last time on some of the archaeology that remains, some of the monuments, particularly the Arch of Titus. And the most significant thing of it, it uh, memorializes the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., And in fact, on the side of it, interior side, you have a relief that portrays the bringing of the temple treasures to Rome after, obviously, the conquest and destruction of the temple, destruction of the city. Just to give you a feel for the city of Rome, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the first century that either spilled over or if not spilled over, at least was present in terms of Christian persecution as well, particularly under Nero. Now, this monument was built after 70 AD, so it would be after the death of Paul. So Paul didn't see that, and he saw pretty much everything else in the city of Rome. So he's writing to a group of believers, probably people within home churches, and in those home churches they would have been worshiping the Lord, and this is what the letter is written to. So we've been looking at those those background issues throughout the book. Just by way of introduction, something more recent, more current, this is what Houston looked like shortly after, actually during the flooding of Hurricane Harvey. Streets, highways, freeways that were once streets turned into canals, actually. And the surprising thing and the good thing is there was very little compared to what could have been, very little loss of life. An amazing number. In fact, the numbers that I saw, you would expect that many people just to die from natural causes, same time frame, just in a city the size of Houston. So lots of good stories there. And the reason we mention that is because... Obviously, a lot of pre-planning, a lot of alerts early, so a lot of people were aware of what was going on, so a lot of people evacuated, a lot of people prepared and were ready for it. And I mention that only as introduction to the passage we're looking at, because the passage we're looking at, you could consider in a spiritual way, this is God's early warning system. He tells ahead of time what he's going to do, and particularly he tells ahead of time consequences of certain actions, and that's what we have in Romans chapter 2. It's to a particular audience, but in chapter 2, he's essentially lays out the predicament of those that don't know Jesus Christ, and those that assumed they had a right relationship with God would have been the Jewish community. They would have considered themselves privileged, and we're going to see later on, beginning in verse 17, that they were, in fact, very privileged 
But that privilege only made them more responsible to respond, first of all, in believing in Messiah, and then secondly, walking in accordance with that belief. So he's addressing, I believe, in chapter 2, verse 1. Some scholars start it a little bit later, but it makes more sense to me in verse 1, laying out the predicament of the self-righteous. He doesn't identify them clearly, but he does speak in the second person, and it seems like he's addressing this to a Jewish audience. So I start the major new section dealing with the guilt of the Jews beginning in verse 1. He lays up the predicament. They are facing God's judgment. Just similarly to how he started uh, chapter 1, verse 18, dealing with humanity in general. He announces that the wrath of God is revealed. So mankind is under wrath. And for the Jews, he focuses in on judgment. So that's the predicament of the self-righteous. And the early warning system, if you will, he's going to lay out these principles of judgment. In other words, what you do today is going to come into accountability later. And this is the basis. These are the principles that God is going to use in evaluating not only all of the Gentiles, but also Jews as well. And these are more by way of reminder. The Old Testament is full of these principles as well. So he's alluding to Old Testament concepts for those that would be familiar with the Old Testament. So we have principles of judgment, chapter 2, verse 2 to 16. And then he's going to bring it home in verse 17, and he's going to prove to the Jews that they are the ones that fall under that predicament, and they are the ones that will be judged according to those principles. So 17 through 29, he's going to prove that point. And then he's going to deal with, well, the Jews are going to argue. They're debaters. They they don't take things easily. You have to convince them. So he's going to deal with their protests, beginning in verse 1, chapter 3, through verse 8. So that's an overview of this major section. And then once we complete that, he's going to condemn all of humanity again, beginning in verse 9. And then we look at the solution, beginning in verse 21, I believe, if I remember right. Look at my outline. Yep. So chapter 1, beginning verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, is condemnation of all of humanity. The guilt of the humanity, 18 through 32. Guilt of the Jews, chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 8. We saw the predicament and we're in the principles. And we've been dealing with the issue of justice. We've also been learning some uh, essential elements of justice. So these principles, we've already looked at the first uh, four. It's based on truth, based on absolute truth. And God being an omniscient God, knows all things, knows all truth, has perfect discernment, has perfect observation concerning everything that has ever taken place. And judgment is based according to that. So all of the evidence is before the court, if you will, and God bases is judgment on that truth. Secondly, no one escapes it. The principle of no escapability, verses 3 through 4, in the back of the Jewish mind was, well, we're privileged, we're called, we're chosen, we have the law, we have the covenants, we have God's favor, we're God's people, we have all of these privileges. He'll lay those out beginning in verse 17. 
And they think, well, therefore, we're okay. We escape God's judgment. Judgment is for Gentiles, for those that are not privileged. And what Paul's going to show is there's no escape, including the Jews. It's also based on what is actually done. It's based on conduct. Conduct, which deals with either omission or commission. Things we do or the things that we should do and don't do. So it's based on conduct, verses 5 through 8. And we're looking at, we started last time, verse 9, didn't quite get done. There's a few more things I want to consider there based on impartiality. God is totally and ultimately and absolutely fair, if you want to use that word. A biblical word is God is just. So he will deal impartially, not based on any externals, not based on any heritage. That was what uh, the Jews were depending on, is their heritage. So God is going to deal impartially, based on truth, based on conduct, based on inescapability, and also impartiality. And the next passage actually is going to be an expansion, if you will, on the idea of impartiality, but I think it has another emphasis, so I've given it a different name. So this is just the outline. And beginning in uh, verse 9 and 10, we have a complete sentence. And just by way of review, we have the main independent clause. There will be tribulation and distress. And then everything else tells us something about this tribulation and distress, tells us who will experience it. Kind of summarizing chapter 1, for every soul of man, uses suke there, but it's using it in this context in terms of the total person. Every person you could translate, in fact some of the translations translate it that way, every soul of man who does evil, going back to conduct, Doing evil. Then now the impartiality part of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So both are involved. So there will be tribulation and distress. So the emphasis here is there are consequences to every action. How we live determines not only our standing but our judgment in the future before a holy God. So I tried to develop the principle of consequences. And I think God illustrates this, I mentioned last time, in a very physical way. There are what we call laws of nature. Now, we as believers believe that the lawgiver is God himself, and he has orchestrated the material, physical realm such that it gives us a picture of something of himself. We saw that in Romans 1. We saw that he reveals himself through that which has been made, verse 20. In other words, the creation. So you can look at the creation and see something of God. You can look at the creation and learn spiritual truth. It illustrates truth. To get a proper interpretation, you need special revelation, however. But there is general revelation, that that God has built into the creation. And I mentioned last time, one of the principles that is universally accepted in the scientific community is the idea of cause and effect. For every cause, there's a greater and appropriate effect. effect. For every effect, there's a cause. I got it backwards. Thank you. 
well known. In fact, you see it in every science. You see it in every experience. You can't jump off a 10-story building and say, well, that doesn't apply to me, the law of gravity. I'm going to escape it somehow. So it illustrates the spiritual idea that every action also has a corresponding consequence. And I applied it last time with parents in terms of we learn many ways, and children as well, but you can put our, we can put ourselves in the same learning experience through school, through books, through teachers, and most academic areas. We learn some of these things through the, these means, but we also learn through experience. In fact, some of the greatest lessons are those that we learn as a result of experience, and here's where we start to get into consequences. Through our experiences, we find out, well, some things are safe, some things are dangerous, some things are good, some things are bad, some things bring bad consequences, so we learn in those ways. Children also can learn from their parents' experiences as they relate. You know, when I was your age, I did such and such, and this is what happened to me. Don't do that. They don't care. <laughs> Some do. <laughs> Very few. <laughs> the experience of others, exactly. We can also learn spiritual things from Scripture. God has designed it to teach. In fact, one of the main things that it does for us, it teaches us spiritual things. And it is inspired. It is inerrant. In fact, it, ex- it explains experiences as well, interprets them. And then I applied... In terms of one of the ways that God teaches is through consequences. And the application I drew, and there's many that we could draw, but one in terms of children learning, having to learn the hard way, what Betty's talking about. In other words, you might have given them all of your experiences. You might have taught them all of the things that you want them to know, all that's right, all that's wrong. But they need to test it, or, well, they don't need to, but they oftentimes do test it. And then they find out for themselves consequences, and they learn for themselves. Well, they need to test it because they just don't believe at first that it applies to them. Yes, but some things they ought to listen, right? (laughs) And I gave a couple of examples from my own uh, observations and people I've seen and what I've seen in parents. And I mentioned last time, this is just reviewing, that I thought that one of the major areas that not all, but some parents fail in is in this area of consequences. And primarily mothers, because they are empathetic and passionate and don't like to see their children suffering, so sometimes they try to remove the pain by alleviating the pain in whatever way. And that's a dangerous thing. You need to evaluate whether or not maybe God is going to teach them through this harsh experience some lessons that is going to teach them the idea of consequences and the idea of what is right and what is wrong. And I saw that pattern in a cousin of mine and and uh, his mother that constantly removed the consequences and he never learned the concept of authority. He never really learned accountability because the lessons were minimized as a result of removing the consequences. So beware, be careful. Sometimes they have to go through the pain because it's the pain that leaves the lasting impression, I don't want to do this again. 
And if you remove that, then they say, oh, okay, it's okay to do this. And they never learn. So anyway, so there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. And the emphasis in this context, every, including those that think they're privileged, including those that, and if that's not clear enough, then we have the next phrase, every soul. Now, the Gentiles generally recognized readily that they were lost and sinners. So he has to press the point to those that that didn't. So there's no exclusions, no exclusions, every soul. The Jew first, and then also to the Greek. And that's where we ended last time. And I wanted to kind of just reiterate that from a couple of passages, one from the Old Testament that Jewish people would be familiar with. Would somebody read Amos 3.2 and somebody else look up Luke 12.48? Anybody got it? first one? Who's got the first one? Mary Lee's got the first one. Who's got Luke? Connie's got uh, Luke 12.48. Amos 3.2. That's right. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. This is Israel. Yeah. Israel's guilt. You only have I known all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Okay. They are privileged. See that? I've known you of all of the families. In other words, you are the privileged one, but you don't escape judgment. In fact, it makes them more accountable. Amos 3.2. And that's the theme of the next passage we'll look at. And more in general, applying not just to the Jews, but to all, Luke 12.48. Connie, you got that one? But he who did not know yet strife shall be everyone too much is given, and to whom much of him. Okay, there's, there's a correspondence between what we are given, and this is especially applicable to, for example, the Jewish community that is given more, because they are given more privilege. They're given the covenants. They're given the law. They're given the blessings, the promises of God. They're more accountable. Now, that's applicable in general, but particularly in this context to those that are privileged, if you will. And that can be brought to home to us. In America, we have the privilege of the freedom to to read the Word, to study the Word, and all of the resources in the Internet, in bookstores, wherever. Good teaching all over the place. Easily accessible to those that much is given what? Much is expected. So we are more accountable. So a very applicable passage. So the Jew first, also the Greek and He's already dealt with them, but in this context, he's reminding them. You've condemned the Greeks, but you do not escape. And then verse 10, but here's the alternative. Here's the contrast. The emphasis of verse 9, every soul who does evil, kind of a general principle. Now, he's not implying here in this context. Keep the context in mind. The context he's trying to bring to the surface People's awareness of condemnation. He's trying to convict them. He's not talking about justification yet. He's not talking about salvation. Particularly in verse 2, it's not what we do that's going to justify us. Because we can't do enough. I've used the analogy. It's like, can you swim from Los Angeles to Catalina Island? Well, good swimmers may be able to. Okay? 
But will that excellent Olympic swimmer be able to swim from Catalina Island to Tokyo? No way. That's the gap between trying to do things in order to please God. You can, could not ever do enough because of sin. We, we do not have the capability. So verse 10, but glory and honor and peace. So this is kind of a another principle. If it were possible for you to gain these things to everyone who does good, if you could gain them, then you would receive glory, honor, and peace. And God is impartial. God is fair. And God is going to judge according to truth. And he's going to judge according to conduct. But what he's doing in this context is just basically laying the principles out. If it were possible, then this is what you could do. This was what you could gain. And then later on, he's going to convict and show that all have sinned and fallen short. All have fallen short. All did not make it to Tokyo. No way. All right? So glory and honor and peace. So we have a principle of blessing. Principle of blessing. We had a principle of consequences of sin. To everyone who does good. Everyone that does good. And then again, emphasizing to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, or in this context, the Greek is Gentile, basically, non-Jewish people. That's a principle. It's not reality. It's in the context of condemnation. Two alternatives, two possibilities. For there, and then here's the broad principle, for there is no partiality with God. That's the emphasis. Don't get sidetracked with trying to please God by works. Scriptures are very clear, and this does not contradict any of those passages that deal with justification by faith and faith alone. He's just laying out principles here. And the main one is this no partiality with God. That's why he mentions the Jew and uh, the Greek. There's no distinction in terms of God's judgment. They're not going to escape. They're going to face the same truth, absolute truth. It's going to be based on conduct. And what he's going to show, beginning in chapter 17, even though they have all these privileges, they're not living up to them. You read ahead in verses 17 through the end of the chapter. So that's the principle. So no partiality, and if that passage isn't clear enough, there are several others that emphasize the same thing. Uh, some in the Old Testament, like the Deuteronomy ten seventeen, and then others in the New Testament. Somebody care to read those real quick? We don't need to read all of them. Why don't we look up Galatians 2 and 1 Peter 1 and the Deuteronomy, and you can write down 1 Corinthians 1 for your notes. Somebody want to read? First of all, which one you got? Uh, Galatians 2, 6. Who's got 1 Peter 1? Ellen back there, somebody else? Terry, you want to do Deuteronomy 10, 17? You got your Bible? Deuteronomy? Got it. Okay, Galatians 2, 6. Okay, so reputation doesn't matter. means nothing before God in terms of judging who has access. In other words, who has ultimately salvation. So it's impartial. First Peter one seventeen. You address as impartially based on yourselves. Okay, the God who judges impartially, and Deuteronomy as well. And Jewish people would be familiar with that one, Terry. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, 
mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Okay. In a Jewish context, Deuteronomy, part of the law, part of the Pentateuch, God is impartial. And there's others as well. These are the clearest and main ones. So what you could actually say is that there, God has principles of generally dealing with kind. And yes. this, this principle of, uh, of blessing or cursing is kind of a general thing. If you do well, if you seek to bless your fellow ma- mankind, you can be as lost as a goose, but you still receive a blessing for your life because you were good, because you lived according to principles that God has laid out. In general, that's applicable, yeah. It, just kind of like in the physical realm, you know, you can't escape the law of gravity. You can't escape. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. These are just sort so. Of also in the bibli- in the spiritual biblical realm as well. Yep, in general, and there is what's called common grace that is applicable to all. God blesses all, and He blesses on the basis of good actions as well. The unbeliever as well. So that. Leads us to the fifth and the final principle, at least in this context. It's based on Revelation. That's verses 12 through 16. And we won't complete that, but we'll get at least into it. So number five, based on Revelation, he's going to deal with three areas. If you look at your outline sheet, I've broken down into three parts, particularly the revelation part, revelation of the Mosaic law. This would be particularly applicable to a Jewish mindset. That's verses 12 and 13. And then he's going to talk about a broader law, a moral law. There's a law that underlies and is the basis for the Mosaic law and that has always existed. The Mosaic law came into being at Sinai, well, it was revealed at least, Moses on Sinai and the children of Israel. But there has always been an underlying moral law that has always existed and continues to exist. And we could also say we are no longer the church. We believers in uh, the church age are not under the Mosaic law. That's a covenant We are not parties. We've talked a lot about covenants. We are not parties to that covenant. So that means we can do anything that we want. Anything that's in the Mosaic law, we can uh, do whatever we want to, right? No, because there is underlying the Mosaic law, there's a, a universal and an eternal moral law that is spiritual and applicable at any time. The Mosaic Law specified particular things that were applicable for the nation of Israel. It was also their constitution. And God made it clear in certain areas, like diet, for example. They were prohibited from eating certain things, observing certain days. That's part of the Mosaic (laughs) Covenant that is applicable to Israel. Those aspects of the moral law or the Mosaic Law did not necessarily continue, but there are some aspects that are universal that are always there. For example, nine of the Ten Commandments are also part of this moral law, and that's why nine of them are repeated in the New Testament as well. The observance of the Sabbath is one that is not 
part of the moral law. It's part of what we might call the ceremonial law, which is different. Make sense? So he's going to deal with the Mosaic law, the revelation of Mosaic law. He's going to deal with this moral law, and we'll talk some more about it as we get into the passage. And then thirdly, I've separated verse 16, because he's already going to begin to move in the direction that there's the revelation of the gospel. That's verse 16. So let's begin, and we'll begin in verse 12, dealing with the Mosaic law. And as usual, I like to give you the whole sentence so that we can break it down and be accurate in our understanding of it. So you might notice that after verse 12, we don't have a period, so the sentence continues, and that's true in the Greek text as well. The English, the New American Standard, reflects the Greek text in this instance, so it doesn't end at the end of verse 12. We don't have the period until verse 13, so we have a semicolon. So we might expect more than one independent clause, okay? So what is the, there are more than one independent clause. Can anyone identify the first independent clause? All, let's see, all will also perish without the law. Yes, the whole clause. All, you did the subject and the verb. All will perish. Very good which is the main part of the independent clause. And actually, you should include all, for all will also perish without the law. And then we have a second one, and all will be judged by the law. Two independent clauses, both of them are related. You might even, they're even somewhat like in Hebrew poetry, even though I don't think this is Hebrew poetry, but you have parallel lines. Or those are the two independent clauses. So everything else is just telling us something about these two <coughs> independent clauses. So the who have sinned without law identifies the all, specifies who the all are. Then we have a second all who have sinned under the law identifies the second all, another a dependent clause, relative clause. And then verse 13 kind of gives an explanation, you might say, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God. It kind of expands it or explains the two independent clauses. And we have two parts to it. And we'll look at it when we get there. Okay, got it? Notice the main thing in this sentence. Talking about those who perish. Talking about those who will be judged. And again, the four there... I think he's expanding, even though I've kind of broken it out as a separate principle. I think there's another principle there. But it's actually an expansion or a follow-up or further explanation of God as impartial. The major principle, God judging according to impartiality. And he's expanding that. But it has another emphasis, that's why I kind of pulled it out. Why do you not use that last phrase in 13? Doers of the law will be justified. And the rest of it supports that final statement. The doers of the law will be justified. You could consider that an independent clause. And then the rest of it are simply yeah. clauses yeah, that's that are a third, supporting that, what that's that a, statement that's is. That's a good observation. Well, I think taken as a whole, but the doers of the law will be justified is more of kind of a commentary on the first part of verse 13. And in the sentence, I think the main emphasis 
particularly in this context, he's talking about judgment here. He's not talking about justification. And again, we, we're not we're not going to get to that today, but when we talk about that, he's dealing with principles here. He's not talking about how you become justified. Otherwise, he's contradicting himself. And because this is inspiration, we don't see contradiction. This is the context of condemnation. But I think Mary Lee's observation is a good one in that we have a third independent clause. But this independent clause is simply contrasting the, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God. Contrasting, completing. Completing? That's another way of putting it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Connie? Verses 13, back up. Yeah, and that's possible as well, because I do think 13 does elaborate or expand upon it. And that might be why the semicolon is there, is because there is an independent clause that follows. Are there other interpretations that have to ask not not too much different from there. Another, you mean translations? Mm-hmm. No. Um, it's very... Uh, yeah, it's, it almost makes you think that uh, you're justified by doing the law. I mean, it just says it. Yeah, that's what it says. But keep it in context. He's laying out principles here in a context of condemnation. In other words... If, in fact, there were someone that could perfectly do the law, if there were anyone, and by the way, there is one, Jesus Christ, but he was not necessarily justified either because he never had sin in need of justification. So it's more of a principle. If if there was the possibility that someone could perfectly swim from Catalina Island to Tokyo, then he would be justified as a swimmer. Because no one. No one can do it. And that's the point that he's driving towards. In this context. Actions. Actions, yeah. Conduct. Just hearing. The big issue with the Jews. With the Jewish people. Yes. Is there's a lot of hearing. Exactly. And that's the point of beginning in verse 17 that he's going to hit home over and over. We'll get to that. Where he's proving the point. He's just laying the principles right now. At least that's how I see it. Make sense? Otherwise... Then you have a contradiction because Paul in chapter 3 says we're justified by faith and faith alone, not by works. Got it? So this is how we harmonize it. Different context and looking at it as a principle that if somebody could do this, then they would be justified. Okay. Before, as I mentioned before, I think ties it back to the principle of impartiality expands it, elaborates further on it. I've only separated it out because I think there's another principle as well, the idea of revelation. For all who have sinned without the law, and what I want to impress upon you, and we'll conclude with this, give you a little lesson in hermeneutics here. Uh, Notice, obviously, what is the emphasis in this passage? The law. And it continues throughout. Now, the little phrase, without the law, has an alpha before nomos, in this case. Nomos is the word, Greek word for law. You add an alpha to it, and it gives the opposite, or in this case, without law. This is the only place that that word, by the way, occurs here. Namas occurs 194 times, I believe, in the New Testament and over 200 times in the Old Testament, the equivalent Old Testament 
word. In fact, the Old Testament word you're familiar with. Anyone know what the Old Testament word for law is? You can probably guess. Torah. Very good. Torah. It's a Hebrew word. Torah. That's where we get the transliteration in English of Torah. In Greek, it's namas. And here, anamos, pretty close there, is without law. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. You have it again. And all who have sinned under namas. There's the Greek word, namas. So it occurs, you might say, three times in verse 12 or four times, rather, will be judged by the law again, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So we have it six times in that sentence. So what? that's a major concept there. So we need to understand what we're talking about here. If you read on, verses 14 through 16, it continues, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, He's not having the law, are a law to themselves. And then verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Why did I make it pink instead of blue? A different word. It's the same identical word. It's namas. It's not a different word. A law as opposed to the law. And notice the, the law is capitalized as well. Now, when you do a word study, this is why I emphasize when you do a word study, you have to be careful in looking at the context of how the author is using a word. Here we have Paul using the same identical word, namas, every one of them that I've highlighted, except for the one without law, that's slightly different, but the others... The New American Standard capitalizes all except this one in verse 14, and it also does not have the article or doesn't include the article. And by the way, in the context, uh, the, the article is present in some of these and not present in others. But the context tells us that he's talking about something. So let's do a little word study. When you do a word study, it's just by way of reminder, if you want to study any word in the Bible... You want to look up all of the usages, and in this case, there's 194 in the New Testament. If you want to do a complete one and go into the Old Testament, there's 214, I believe, if I remember right, off the top of my head. Usages of the corresponding word that is also translated in the English for law and has essentially the same usages as we have it in the New Testament. So you look them all up, and in this case, you have a cluster of them. You have uh, several of them. We have six in verses 12 and 13, and now we have five more. But we even see that the translators are already giving you a hint. Same sentence, same context, same verse, using the same word in a slightly different sense. So you evaluate the context. So where do you go to find out, where do you, how do you find all these? If you're going to do a word study, where do you find them? How do you, how do you? Concordance. You go to a concordance, very simple. Okay. And if you're going to do it in the Greek text, you get a Greek concordance. And there's a real handy tool that most of you can use. Those of you that haven't, don't even know Greek, but if you know the Greek letters, because the words are alphabetical, the Greek words are listed, it's called Englishman's Greek concordance. 
It's English Friends because it's the name of the man that put it together, and coincidentally, it's also in English. <laughs> so you can use it. Very handy. Or you can borrow mine uh, if you want to do a good word study. Then you can look up the actual word, in this case, namas, and now you just look them up and try to figure out how is the author using them in this particular context. So let's kind of follow through. We've got a list of 194, and now we're just starting to look them up, and we're going to kind of make a list. By the way, what you are doing is you are creating your own, quote, dictionary of Greek words. That's all a dictionary does. Here's a trick question. Does a dictionary give you definitions? Trick question. Yes or no? Yes. Most of you say yes. It's a trick question. No. (laughs) A dictionary gives the various usages of a word. All right? It doesn't define them for you. What defines words? Context. Exactly. So you look up a word in an English dictionary, any word, an English word, and it's going to give you number one. It's used in this way. Number two, it's used in this way. Number three, it's used in this way. Right? And maybe four, five, six, or however many ways it's used. The definition is, okay, when this person was saying this word, they were using it in this way. That is the definition of the word that they are using it. This is how they are using it. We do the same thing in doing a word study of Bible words. And if you want to do it from the Greek text, you're more precise. Okay? Well, if you do that, you're going to come up with several categories. You might even have in your mind some different ways that the word law could be used. In fact, what might it be used? What way might it be used? In uh, this passage, for example, 12 through 15, law, 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 and then we have it over here again, law, 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 and then a law, and then law again. How might it be used? How do you think Paul is using it? There's some possibilities here. Could be a reference to the Ten Commandments. That's a good suggestion. And you gave a second one, or Terry? The Mosaic Covenant, or law, could be used as the Mosaic Covenant, and or law. And I'm going to show you that uh, there's a distinction sometimes made. Okay? Anything else? The whole Old Testament. Very good. The whole Old Testament could be used in the sense of the whole Old Testament. It's used in that way as well. How about this one right here? The one that I've got in pink rather than in blue. Mm, Is that the Mosaic Law? That's why it's not capitalized, right? It's probably not. Probably not the Old Testament, probably not the Ten Commandments, probably not the Mosaic Covenant, probably not the Pentateuch, another possibility, Betty. That's a good suggestion, a natural law or more like a principle or a natural universal law that may be spiritual or non-spiritual necessarily, okay? You could say more like general revelation. General revelation, very good, okay. So we already came up with, what, five different categories of how that word namas might be used. And that's what I have on this slide. Sometimes it's used of the Old Testament in general. And by the way, Paul uses it in the book of Romans in all of these ways. All of the ways I'm going to list. In fact, why don't I just list them all? 
It can be used in the sense of the Pentateuch. And I'll show you how to make those distinctions. Pentateuch is what? First five books of the Bible. It can be used as the Mosaic Covenant, specifically. We've mentioned these. It can be used of civil law. We didn't mention that one, but Paul uses it in that sense as well. In other words, it's not the Mosaic Law, but it's Roman Law or civic law. And it's used of the moral law in this context. Okay? And it's used in the sense of a principle or a universal law or maybe even a natural law, you might say. And notice, these are the passages in the book of Romans where Paul uses it in all of these senses. Now, in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, would somebody quickly read those? And I'll tell you why I've come to the conclusion that it refers to the Old Testament in general. Connie, go ahead. Now, we know that whatever the Lord under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and therefore, by the law, by his sight, for by the knowledge. Okay. By the law, there, there are several little details in there. By the law is the knowledge of sin. I think that's general. Not just in the Mosaic law, but law in a broader sense. You can learn lots of things from other parts besides the strictly speaking law or the Pentateuch or the Mosaic portion of the Pentateuch. But the key to understanding this one, if you look at the quotations that he makes beginning in verse through 10 through 18, you're going to see that some of those are quotations out of the Psalms. Quotations out of the psalm. So in this context, when he's talking about the law, he's probably speaking in a broad, general sense. Do you see that? Which would include the whole Old Testament in general. But notice the next verse, verse 21. You want to read that one since you're there as well, Connie. Verse 21. Notice the last usage. He makes a slight distinction there. And now the righteousness of God. See the little phrase there? The law and what? And prophets. What has he just done? What what do you think he's just done there by adding the little and prophets? He's changed the way that he's using it. Now he is specifically referring to what? Probably the Pentateuch, a common little phrase in the New Testament, the law and the prophets. In that context, when it adds the prophets, it's talking about the, the Old Testament, Sometimes it'll use a three-part phrase, the law and the prophets and the writings. Now he's divided it into three parts. Jesus uses that. But the law and the prophets, so we have, and by the way, when you speak of prophets, prophets include Joshua, include First and Second Samuel. These are the historical prophets. A prophet was a revealer or a receiver of revelation, and then they wrote it down. So you have basically any scripture is written by a prophet. So when it says the law, that's the Pentateuch, first five books, and the prophets. See that little distinction there? And then the Mosaic Covenant, I think it's used in that way in verse 20 because it's talking about the Jewish obligation of obedience, and they were under that Mosaic Covenant. Somebody read uh, 2.20 and then verse 23. Russ, you got it? Somebody else in the meantime, who's got uh, chapter now, 7? The structure of the foolish, a teacher of all children, having in a law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach? While you preach against stealing, do you? Okay. Specifically, he's talking about 
stipulations in the Mosaic Covenant there. Now, our time has run out. I'll let you look up the rest of them. But in chapter 7, 1 through 3, he's using it in the idea. He's using an illustration of civil law dealing with marriage. The laws pertaining to marriage there as an illustration. But he's using the word nama, same word, in reference to civil law or Roman law in this case. Moral law, we'll pick up here next week. I think he's talking about the moral law in 2.14. That's that one that I put in pink. There's a moral law or a broad law that is inward. We'll talk about that next week. And then if you want to look at 3.27 and 28, he's using it in an even broader sense in terms of just a principle and you might even say almost a general principle. And New American Standard actually translates namas as principle in verse 27. You got it? Here's a general principle that is very, very applicable to you and I as believers. The more revelation one receives, the more responsible he is to respond to it. That applies to the believer as well as the unbeliever. Making it more concise, revelation demands response. Very good. Revelation demands response. Everybody get that? Okay, let's close the word for a little instruction in how to do a word study and do some applications. Who wants to close for us? Jeremy, you're quiet. Lord, we just praise you, Lord. You are so amazing, Lord. You're all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving. So much for your law, so much for our relationship, that you have made your laws uh, apparent to everyone, Lord. We have general uh, revelations, special revelation, and special grace. We thank you so much for your support, Lord. I just pray you with each one of us this week, Lord, as we uh, go about where we're going, Lord, that you shine through us, Lord, that we would draw in close to everything you've done for us today.